There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. This is Brett, and you are listening to The Essential School Sucks, Episode 2 of 50. Today's show is titled, The Bipartisan Conspiracy Against Parents and Students. Today's audio is going to expand on a question that I asked in the last show. When I was talking about John Gatto's story and my awakening, I said, so what is school really? What is its actual purpose? Today, we're going to start providing some historical context that begins to answer that question. In these first 10 shows that deal with the real problems of public school, we're going to return to the history of public schooling several times because it really, really helps build a contextual understanding of where we are right now. With the current school controversies, whether they're around uh, so-called critical race theory or all of the new and exciting topics in sex ed, it is clear that school decision-making is moving further and further away from parental control, from parental supervision, and even from parental awareness. Just yesterday, actually, today is May 15th, 2022, I heard this story of a talk radio host, conservative talk radio host, who is promoting the idea of cameras in the classroom as a surveillance remedy to the teaching of critical race theory in K-12 schooling. I totally understand the feeling, the fear, the frustration behind the cameras in the classroom movement. Apparently it's a movement. But geez, if it was only that simple, if this was as simple as a bunch of nitwits who just wandered out of their colleges, gender studies or social sciences programs and into your children's elementary schools, unfortunately, momentum has been building to the current moment for over a hundred years, as far as moving the locus of control away from students, away from parents, away from communities, and more and more into the hands of this seemingly bizarre nexus of government, corporations, and academia. You can see progressive school personalities. I don't want to call them educators, so we'll call them school personalities. Uh, places like Twitter, saying like blatantly parents it's not your business what we're teaching your kids in the schools that you pay for but unfortunately for all of us who attended public schools in the last 150 years in america this is not a new sentiment 
if Twitter or TikTok existed 100 years ago, you would probably see many like-minded people saying almost exactly the same thing. So today we're going to talk about a history that I believe is worth knowing because this history affected all of us. You're about to hear an audio of me from 2012 talking about things that happened in America in the 1920s, the 1930s, and the 1940s. And I guarantee at several points you're going to say, wow, that is completely relevant to the current situation. The results of the projects that you're going to learn about in this show, the projects, I should say, the results of that we all inherit. And as you listen to me tell this story, I'd like you to think about not just about education, but about the politics of the pandemic and some of the seemingly strange partnerships that form between the corporate world and the government. And uh, academia always seems to be lurking about in these situations as well. I think you'll walk away from this with a better understanding of why certain philanthropists want to meddle in the public schools. Bill Gates dumped a ton of money into the New York City school system. A few years ago, I think Mark Zuckerberg put up $500 million for New Jersey's failing public schools, and all of the money almost immediately evaporated. But what are people like that trying to buy? So when we look at school current events, it's really easy. It's tempting to frame this as like a left-wing progressive corruption of our children. But the title of today's show is Intentionally Provocative, and I chose it because I hope it will help you think about this issue beyond left and right, beyond Republican and Democrat, progressive and conservative. You're going to learn about some strange alliances today. That left first right stuff, that division, that's for us. That's for the plebs. Up above, where the decisions about how all of us will live our lives are made, or at least people try to make them. Everyone's getting along really nicely. There is a lot of harmony at the social and cultural engineering level. Of course, tribalism is worse than ever, and I put this potentially provocative show early in the collection because I want us to both start asking the question, are we right for each other? You know, me as podcast creator and you as listener. A good litmus test would be like, if you think everything is better when Donald Trump gets elected president again, Grover Cleveland style in 2024, we're probably not right for each other. I think it would be really funny if he did get elected again, as long as I had a safe place to watch from. And I use that kind of extreme example just to make the point that I know it's tempting to frame things in terms of personalities and politics. But doing so often leads us to overlooking larger, more important trends and forces. And I'm going to ask that you just give me until the end of this audio to provoke your thoughts a little bit. And if today's exploration inspires you to learn more, a fun place you could start is schoolsucksproject.com slash gato, G-A-T-T-O. And there is a playlist of videos that I produced based on his book, The Underground History of American Education. Most of them are short, under 10 minutes, and they paint not a complete picture, but a fuller picture of the historical momentum that built up to the current school crisis. I'll put a link in the show notes. In fact, in today's show, and this moves me into my final notes before we get started, I mentioned the underground history of American education. You'll hear me read from that in the show today. You will start to see, if you don't already know, why John Taylor Gatto is so important and so impressive. 
uh, for his scholarship on this subject. His is a name that you'll be hearing a lot in these first 10 episodes that deal with the real problem of public school. You'll also hear a name, Peg Luxick, and I will say in a previous show, we talked about outcomes-based education. You have not heard that show yet, but you will. We need to get a bit of a running start before we get into outcomes-based education. It's uh, pretty startling, but that show is coming soon. I should also warn you, this show opens with audio of Noam Chomsky, and many of you might say, what have I gotten myself into here? I ask you to bear with me. This exploration is a kind of integration of school criticisms from all different political angles, and I promise it comes together so nicely in the end. And just to eliminate any possible confusion, this was 2012, and at one point I mentioned some controversy over a place that sells chicken sandwiches. Apparently, the big issue at the time I was recording this was Chick-fil-A. I don't even remember what the controversy was. I think it, it had something to do with religious values being built into their business, which was, in simpler times, uh, worthy of outrage, apparently. All right. If you want to learn more about how you can help the School Sucks Project and support our partners like Praxis, stay tuned to the very end or just check the show notes. And you are about to listen to The Essential School Sucks number two, originally released August 6th, 2012, as episode 155, No Child Left Behind and Other Bipartisan Education Conspiracies. Thank you for listening. And here we go. In the background, there are contrasting conceptions of uh, uh, who, whom education is for and uh, what it is for. So let's take a look at whom it is for. Uh, one, there are two views, two fundamental views go far back. Uh, one of them, one view is that education is, uh, higher education is uh, for, basically for the elites, uh, for the privileged. Uh, the rest of the population should be dumbed down uh, maybe allowed entry into vocational schools, uh, learn trades. Uh, there's a more general conception that lies in the background, uh, which strikingly holds across the mainstream political spectrum. Uh, it's more instructive almost always to focus on the left liberal extreme, so I'll keep to that, uh, the less harsh extreme. Uh, so for example, the, the leading public intellectual of the 20th century, uh, Walter Lippmann, who was a uh, a kind of a Wilson, Roosevelt, Kennedy liberal. Uh, he, his view was that uh, 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 the general that we have to distinguish between uh, the intelligent minority called the responsible men and uh, what he called the ignorant and meddlesome outsiders. That's the general population who have to be uh, spectators but not participants in action and the responsible men, uh, incidentally, anyone who ever discusses this is always part of the intelligent minority by definition. Uh, so the intelligent minority, the responsible men who are in charge of decision making, they have to be protected, in his words, from the roar and the trampling of the bewildered herd. Uh, he developed the concept of manufacture of consent as a new art of democracy which has to be used to keep the uh, ignorant and meddlesome outsiders from interfering. He, he was actually relying on his own experience. This was, these were writings in the 1920s, and suddenly they're called progressive essays on democracy. Uh, he was relying on his experience in the 
first and in many ways only official uh, U.S. propaganda agency, the Committee on Public Information, a term that Orwell would have liked. It was the Creel Commission established during the First World War to try to drive a pacifist population into raving warmongers. And it worked pretty successfully. Uh, it uh, was led by the responsible men, the intelligent minority, who were more or less unaware that they themselves were the targets of uh, an earlier propaganda agency, the British Ministry of Information, another Orwellian phrase, which uh, was essentially designed to control the thought of uh, American elites. So they would therefore participate in the great task of bringing America into the First World War on England's side. Uh, the, uh, another member of the Creel Commission who was also very impressed by it was uh, Edward Bernays. Now he's the, one of the main founders of the modern public relations industry and his views were about the same. Uh, there has to be an intelligent minority in control and uh, we have to have a technique, he called it engineering of consent, to make sure that the rabble stays in their place as spectators, not participants. Uh, that's uh, uh, the, the basic view goes back much farther. Uh, so, for example, long before this, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, was considering the question of why uh, political leaders uh, are interested in having public education, mass public education was just beginning. And he said that the ground on which eminent public servants urge the claims of popular education is fear. Uh, in their words, he says, this country is filling up with thousands and millions of voters and you must educate them to keep them from our throats, uh, meaning educate them the right way, uh, keep their perspectives and their understanding narrow and restricted, discourage free and independent thought, and frighten them into obedience, uh, something that's done over and over in the schools as well. We've all experienced it. If you go back uh, still farther... Our system is wonderfully designed to sort people out. Some people need to work on the factory floor, some people need to be managers. But if you're saying we don't want to sort people out, we want everybody to have the skills of managers, then you've got to have a different system. If everybody's at a high level of educational level, are they really going, going to be willing to do that work if their skills exceed that? So then you wonder, how will our economy work since the largest growing area, the growth area of jobs in our country is the service economy? Uh, would our economy actually work? And I'm not talking about whether it should be that way, I'm just saying the way it is. And, and so you do wonder then if people are knowledgeable about that, are they really sincere in making everybody at a high level? When this test is scored by the machine, you have three choices, right? And you can, this is what you need to know. You can only choose one choice. Look at this one. What if I filled it in like this? I want to tell you what's going to happen if I go. The machine doesn't read it. A human being doesn't look at these. A machine looks at them.
that's what they're doing through the education system. They are shaping our thinking. This is a fourth grade uh, book that explains a critical thinking question. By the way, what does critical thinking mean if there is no self-evident truth? We assume it means learning to discern the truth, but a self-evident truth doesn't exist. It becomes a tool for shaping thought. And here's an example. Well, this is the teacher's guide that tells us that this section describes it as thinking that is focused on deciding what to believe and what to do. Now, that's with a predetermined outcome. Here's some of the examples. Ask students to think of a law they would like to see passed. Suggest the environment, endangered species, education, those things that are important to sustainable development. Uh, here's a teacher's uh, assignment. Divide students into two or three groups. Have each group work together to produce a bill of rights for animals. Tell them to begin by discussing the ways in which they feel animals are sometimes treated unfairly. Folks, this is the lesson during the study of the Bill of Rights. This is what the kids are doing in their classrooms. Mainstream, this is Houghton Mifflin. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. In today's introduction, you heard a variety of voices. A progressive socialist, you might say. Intellectual, a conservative scholar, a teacher, and an administrator. And what do they all have to do with one another? That's what we're going to talk about on the show today. This is a continuation of the material that we have been covering on our live show in recent episodes, dealing with the control of children's behavior, attitudes, and values through a top-down system. It's nothing new. It's kind of what this show is about. But in recent weeks, we've wanted to add some more detail to this story that goes back over a century. And one topic that I'm yet to explore on the podcast is a piece of legislation that came at the very beginning of this century called No Child Left Behind. In a recent show called Behaviorism in Disguise, Outcome-Based Education, I used some clips of a woman from the early 90s. Her name was Peg Luxick. She was giving a talk at a Pennsylvania school board meeting about outcome-based education. In this speech, she presented an impressive amount of evidence using primary source material almost exclusively to back up her thesis that control over quote-unquote education in America was resting in the hands of a very small and exclusive group of people And this was no well-intentioned group as far as the outcomes they desired for the children of the 90s and the society of the future. To refresh your memory, here's a little clip from that video where she discusses exactly how this consolidation of control happens. There's really only one plan. There's really only one set of standards. There's really only one set of goals. And all the districts are going to look the same, or the state has this very big hammer called academic bankruptcy that can take whatever's left of local control away from the parents. Remember the drug-free schools? You know, the districts heard that the state did it, but it really came from the federal level. And so if we, you know, we have to work through the state up to the federal level because this is really a push from the federal level down through the states. The federal government came to the state and said, do you want our money in your block grant? And the state, of course, said yes. And the federal government said, okay, here's the mandate. Federal money stopped there. State took the mandate. State turned around to school district and said, do you want our money in your school district? Yes. Here's the mandate. The federal money stopped at the state level and so did the protection of federal law. But the federal mandates are jumping that line. And so what we have affecting local district policy in in many areas is really a federal mandate and not a state mandate. 
it's a civil rights issue. You know, I had a reporter say to me, well, you're just mad because, you know, you don't want Marla Thomas talking to your kids. And I said, you know, this, this system gives whoever is in control of the state the opportunity to mold the character of the children to their values. Whether it's Mother Teresa or Adolf Hitler is immaterial. Neither Mother Teresa nor Adolf Hitler should have the right to mold every child in the state to their particular value system. That's the role of the families in the state. It doesn't matter whether you're liberal or conservative. It's a civil rights issue, you're right. Behavior modification is not liberal or conservative. It changes children to the state-desired response, and whoever controls the state controls the response. Now, we have to be cautious as we go forward with our investigation, and we have to ask uh, important questions like who are our allies in this and what are their motives? Well, with the establishment of the Department of Education in the late 1960s and its growth over the subsequent decades, many of the harshest critics, many of those who sounded the alarm on what was going on in government schooling as if it was something new, they were conservatives, usually with what we'll call strong Christian values. They were worried about the progressive direction, as they identified it, that American education had taken away from traditional American values. At the very beginning of the show, you also hear Noam Chomsky. That is from a speech that he recently gave at the University of Arizona. Chomsky's speech is roughly two hours long, but the gist of it is that American education has shifted towards a different agenda, and today it serves the needs of the rich and the powerful. Even though these are uh, different ideas coming from Michael Chapman of EdWatch and Noam Chomsky, who is a professor and a very famous and controversial public intellectual, he's a professor of linguistics at MIT, one idea that we can abstract from both speeches is away from the good and into the bad. Well, this is uh, kind of true, definitely deeper into the bad, if you ask me. But why such different viewpoints? Well, we have different sides of the political spectrum. And I think if people understand that in the past, and we're going back a century here, there have been complex networks set up for the goals with education, with respect to education, of social, political, industrial, and economic efficiency. Well, there's nothing particularly efficient about freedom, free will, individual self-determination, volition, for those who wish to manage society or those who are the beneficiaries of the existing power structure. So you just get a box. You write freedom on it and tell everyone to get inside. It's way easier. And today, while many Americans who are politically... I hate to use a word like conscious, but I can't think of a better one right now, are more than happy to be thrown into a box where they can have predictable left versus right, Republican versus Democrat, liberal versus conservative type discussions about restaurants that serve fried chicken sandwiches or whatever the topic of the week is. There are people who live very much outside that box of this versus that unproductive acrimony, where the illusion of political choices that exist within the box all lead to predetermined and safe outcomes for those who are outside of the box. Some of them might be very amused by what goes on inside, but outside of the box, they've got big plans. And those plans, those agendas, seldom have, you know, those hard political lines drawn between different interested parties. I want to read a selection from a book that we've been using 
kind of frequently on the show lately. It is by John Taylor Gatto. It is called The Underground History of American Education. This is like the most amazing resource I've ever come across. Chapter 12 is called The Daughters of the Barons of Running Mead. This section is entitled The General Education Board and Friends. Reading through the papers of the Rockefeller Foundation's General Education Board, an endowment rivaled in school policy influence in the first half of the 20th century only by Andrew Carnegie's various philanthropies, seven curious elements force themselves on the careful reader. Number one, there appears to be a clear intention to mold people through schooling. Two, there is a clear intention to eliminate tradition and scholarship. Three, the net effect of various projects is to create a strong class system verging on caste. Four, there is a clear attention to reduce mass critical intelligence while supporting infinite specialization. Five, there is a clear intention to weaken parental influence. Six, there is a clear intention to overthrow accepted custom. Seven, there is striking congruency between the cumulative purposes of the General Education Board projects and the utopian precepts of the oddball religious sect, once known as perfectionism, a secular religion aimed at making the perfection of human nature, not salvation or happiness, the purpose of existence. The agenda of philanthropy, which has had so much to do with the schools we got, turns out to contain an intensely political component. This is not to deny that genuine altruistic interests aren't also part of philanthropy. But as Ellen Lajeman correctly reflects in her interesting history of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, Private Power for the Public Good, in advancing some interests, foundations have inevitably not advanced others. Hence, their actions must have political consequence, even when political purposes are not avowed or even intended. To avoid politics in dealing with foundation history is to miss a crucial part of the story. Edward Berman, in the Harvard Education Review, 49, in 1977, puts it more brusquely. Focusing on Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Ford philanthropies, he concludes that the public rhetoric of disinterested humanitarianism was little more than a facade behind which the interests of political state, not necessarily those of society, have been actively furthered. The rise of foundations to key positions in educational policy formations amounted to what Clarence Carrier called the development of a fourth branch of government, one that effectively represented the interests of corporate wealth. The corporate foundation is mainly a 20th century phenomenon, growing from 21 specimens of the breed in 1900 to approximately 50,000 in 1990. From the beginning, foundations aimed squarely at educational policy formation. Rockefeller's General Education Board obtained an incorporating act from Congress in 1903 and immediately began to organize schooling in the South, joining older Slater cotton woolen manufacturing interests in the Peabody banking interest in a coalition in which Rockefeller picked up many of the bills. From the start, the General Education Board had a mission— a letter from John D. Rockefeller Sr. specified that his gifts were to be used, quote, to promote a comprehensive system, unquote. You might well ask what interest the system was designed to promote. You would be asking the wrong question. Frederick Gates, the Baptist minister hired to disperse Rockefeller largesse, gave a terse explanation when he said, the key word is system. American life was too unsystematic to suit corporate genius. Rockefeller's foundation was about systematizing us. In 1913, 
the 62nd Congress created a commission to investigate the role of these new foundations, Carnegie, Rockefeller, and other corporate families. After a year of testimony, it concluded, quote, The domination of men in whose hands the final control of a large part of American industry rests is not limited to their employees, but is being rapidly extended to control the education and social services of the nation, unquote. Foundation grants directly enhance the interests of the corporations sponsoring them, it found. The conclusion of this Congressional Commission, quote again, the giant foundation exercises enormous power through direct use of its funds, free of any statutory entanglements so they can be directed precisely to the levers of a situation. This power, however, is substantially increased by building collateral alliances which insulate it from criticism and scrutiny, unquote. Foundations automatically make friends among banks which hold their large deposits in investment houses which multiply their monies in law firms which act as their counsels and with the many firms, institutions, and individuals with which they deal and whom they benefit. By careful selection of trustees from the ranks of high editorial personnel to other media executives and proprietors, they can ensure themselves press support and by engaging public relations counselors can further create good publicity. As Renee Wormser, chief counsel for the second congressional inquiry into foundational life in 1958, put it, all of its connections and associations, plus the often sycophantic adulation of the many institutions and individuals who receive largesse from the foundations, give it an enormous aggregate of power and influence. This power extends beyond its immediate circle of associations to those who hope to benefit from its bounty. In 1919, using Rockefeller money, John Dewey. Yes, that is the same John Dewey, one of the most revered progressive heroes of all time, by progressives, I mean, getting funding from the Rockefellers, people that I think most progressives would consider to be pretty Republican-y. Let's read on. In 1919, using Rockefeller money, John Dewey, now a professor at Columbia Teachers College, an institution heavily endowed by Rockefeller, founded the Progressive Education Association. Through its existence, it spread the philosophy which undergirds welfare capitalism, that the bulk of the population is biologically childlike, requiring lifelong care. From the start, Dewey was joined by other Columbia professors who made no secret that the objective of the PEA project was to use the educational system as a tool to accomplish political goals. In The Great Technology, written in 1933, Harold Rugg elucidated the grand vision. A new public mind is to be created. How? Only by creating tens of millions of individual minds and welding them into a new social mind. Old stereotypes must be broken up and, quote, new climates of opinion formed in the neighborhoods of America. Through the schools of the world... We shall disseminate a new conception of government, one that will embrace all the activities of men and one that will postulate the need of a scientific control in the interest of the people. That's the end of that excerpt. In a similar fashion, the work of the Social Science Research Council culminated in a statement of conclusions and recommendations on its Carnegie Foundation-funded operations, which had enormous and lasting impact upon education in the United States. Conclusions heralded the decline of the old order, stating aggressively that, quote, a new age of collectivism is emerging, unquote, which will involve the supplanting of private property by public property 
and will require experimentation and, quote, almost certainly a large measure of compulsory cooperation of citizens, a corresponding enlargement of all the functions of government and increasing state intervention. Rights will be altered and abridged, unquote. Conclusions was a call to the teachers' colleges to instruct their students to condition children, that is in quotes, into an acceptance of the new order in progress. Reading, writing, and arithmetic were to be marginalized as irrelevant, even counterproductive. Quote, as often repeated, the first step is to consolidate leadership around the philosophy and purpose of education herein expounded. Unquote. The difficulties in trying to understand what such an odd locution as compulsory operation might really mean, or even trying to determine what historic definition of education would fit such a usage, were ignored. Those who wrote this report, and some of those who read it, were the only ones who held the Rosetta Stone to decipher it. In an article in Progressive Education magazine, Professor Norman Wolfell produced one of the many children and grandchildren of the Conclusions Report when he wrote in 1946, quote, It might be necessary for us to control our press— as the Russian press is controlled and as the Nazi press is controlled, unquote. A startling conclusion he improved upon in his book, The Molders of the American Mind, written in 1933 with this dark beauty, quote, In the minds of men who think experimentally, America is conceived as having a destiny which bursts the all-too-obvious limitations of Christian religious sanctions, unquote. The Rockefeller Endowed Lincoln Experimental School at Columbia Teachers College was the testing ground for Harold Rugg's series of textbooks, which moved 5 million copies by 1940 and millions more after that. In these books, Rugg advanced this theory. Education must be used to condition the people to accept social change. This is in quotes. Education must be used to condition the people to accept social change. The chief function of the schools is to plan the society of the future, unquote. Like many of his activities over three vital decades on the school front, the notions Rugg put forth in The Great Technology, written in 1933, were eventually translated into practice in urban centers. Rugg advocated that the major task of schools be seen as indoctrinating youth using social science as the core of the school curriculum to bring about the desired climate of public opinion. Some attitudes Rugg advocated teaching were reconstruction of the national economic system to provide for central controls and the implantation of the attitude that educators as a group were, quote, vastly superior to a priesthood. Our task is to create swiftly a compact body of minority opinion for the scientific reconstruction of our social order. Money for Rugg's six textbooks came from Rockefeller Foundation grants to the Lincoln School. He was paid two salaries by the foundation, one as an educational psychologist for Lincoln, the other as a professor of education at the Teachers College, in addition to salaries for secretarial and research services. The General Education Board provided funds equivalent to $500,000 in year 2000 purchasing power to produce three books, which were then distributed by the National Education Association, the NEA. So, folks, what a weird mix of characters, huh? We have the Rockefellers, we have John Dewey, we've got corporations, we've got the NEA, big banks. It's like all over the political spectrum as, you know, we, the public, are supposed to perceive it, right? Those political divisions, that stuff is for us. But up above where the plans for all of us are made, when you add in a ton of money and influence and you remove transparency and accountability, seems like everybody's getting along pretty well. So if I am successful today, the function of this show will be to 
build a bridge between uh, these two different criticisms coming from different viewpoints on the state of public schooling in America. You know, the left talk about this centralized corporate conspiracy takeover of what is a public good. The right talks about, you know, the usurping of sovereignty and children being indoctrinated to view the United Nations as God. So it seems like there's different antagonists. But what if everybody was talking about the same thing and they just didn't know it? And we talk a lot about the Rockefellers, and the goal of today's show is certainly not to reveal some kind of grand conspiracy, even though it is a conspiracy, uh, but to illustrate how far corrupt ideas can go when they are foisted upon an uncritical, unphilosophical population managed by obedient intellectuals and thoughtless bureaucrats. Even in 1903, when the General Education Board was founded, these aspirations for control through schooling were nothing new. The Prussian system was almost a century old at that point. But unfortunately, these aspirations, these plans, were far from extinction. So, from the founding of the Rockefeller Education Board in 1903, let's jump a hundred years into the future. We're about to hear from a conservative scholar named Michael Chapman of edwatch.org speaking at the American Policy Center. And he's talking about schooling, government schooling in America, and how it relates to globalism. More specifically, a comprehensive plan that originated in the United Nations and has very much gone into effect in the world often referred to as Agenda 21. Uh, this is a big conspiracy media buzzword, but again, it is very much a real thing. Agenda 21 has a lot to do with the urgency of environmentalism. The planet we're living on is flooding, dying, getting hotter, getting colder, uh, so on and so forth, and we need intervention on a global scale and that intervention, because it is so necessary, will have an effect on social, economic, personal, and political life for everybody in the world. Uh, Agenda 21 is a very ominous name, so there are euphemisms that are often pushed out in front of it. This is most often referred to under the umbrella term sustainable development, but that also uh, includes things like global citizenship and multiculturalism. In this talk, Chapman is reading from a UNESCO document. UNESCO is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. And this was their toolkit, I believe it's called. It was written in 2003 for a conference called Education for a Sustainable Future. They go on to say the primary purpose of social studies is to help young people develop the ability to make informed and reasoned decisions who gets to define informed and reasoned decisions for the public good as citizens of a culturally diverse democratic society in an interdependent world. Now this is all marketing gobbledygook that has real meaning underneath it. Sounds bad to you and I who are a little more in tune than the rest of the world and what this stuff really means, but keep in mind we spent millions of focused market research to come up with the language to mask the agenda. The agenda is exposed by looking at the curriculum. 
But first I want to, to play a little video clip of the senior director of the Mid-Continental Regional Education Laboratory in 1989 as she revealed to the National Governors Association the agenda for education. She's going to list three important aspects of what education is about. Listen to the, for the three. Seems to me that far too much of our efforts have been focused on the issue of let's find a short-term fix and fix up these schools and taking care of them, rather than the issue of understanding that what we're into is a total restructuring of the society. What is happening in America today and what is happening in Kansas and the Great Plains is not simply uh, a chance situation in the usual winds of change. What it amounts to is a total transformation of our society. And the issue for most children and the issues for the society is that what has changed in education today is that we no longer see the teaching of facts and information as the primary outcome of education. During the past 10 years, we've been going through a reform movement. And that reform movement began with the governors of the nations, uh, the nation, and basically, what their concern was, was that they began to understand the very close relationship between economic development and human capital. Did you catch the three parts? Number one, the total transformation of society. Number two, facts and information, knowledge, is no longer the primary purpose of education. And number three, the close connection between economic, let's call it sustainable, development, and human capital, that is labor, human resource labor for a planned economy. Now, it shouldn't surprise you then to see this information in the Minnesota 72 plan. She said we've been working on this for over a decade. That was in 70 or 89. It goes back at least to 79. I have information that goes back to 1933, folks. Uh, but uh, it says environmental education is a new way of thinking. It is a lifelong process. How many have heard the term lifelong learning? Uh, it goes on to say that it requires basic cultural changes and the responsibilities must be shared by governments, schools, and businesses. Now the way this is being done is through something called public-private partnerships. We've heard a little bit of that term. But this is a public-private uh, partnership between government, education, and the economy, or business. Reinventing government, education, and business. Now, the, the interesting thing to ask here is, what happens when you're in partnership with an 800-pound gorilla? The purpose of the other partners is to feed the gorilla. And that is, in fact, what is happening and what we're seeing taking place. Now, the first piece was Goals 2000 that finalized the plan, that changed the purpose of education in content. I often say there's only two problems with education, its content and its structure. We fix those two things and we fix education. The content piece came through Goals 2000. That locked the entire curriculum. It gave us a national curriculum, a national test, a national teacher's licensing rule that all 50 states signed on to merely because of the promise of grant money. The second piece was School to Work, also passed in 94. School to Work created the, business, the partnership between education and the economy. Knowledge is now derived at structurally what the planners will see the future economic needs are going to be and retrofit our children into specific career clusters. How many have heard the term career clusters? The schools here in Maine are being, being restructured as well. They were one of the 10 pilot states along with Minnesota. 
By the way, under No Child Left Behind, uh, they have now renamed career clusters Smaller Learning Communities. Doesn't that sound nice? Nice. And that, those are the grants now that your districts are applying for to help implement the same system. Now the third piece is less known, that is the Workforce Investment Act. That created the state and federal boards and it created the local investment boards in the various regions of your state to manage the whole thing. Now this Workforce Investment Act, the only thing I want to say about it is it brought in a new term that you need to understand, appointed representatives. Now think about that a minute. The boards are made up of appointed representatives of business, representatives of teachers, representatives of parents, representatives of labor, representatives. The boards are by law have to be 51% business representative, but they're all appointed. You see, in a free society, those groups should get to vote and elect their own representation. In a government tyranny, representatives are appointed to represent your interests. Read your documents. It's, I found it all over Maine. All over Maine. Every single one of your boards, whether it's the sustainability boards, anything, is appointed representation. That alone is worthy of exposure. Now let's move on. No Child Left Behind locked the entire thing in place at the pretense of sunsetting Goals 2000 and School to Work. Keep in mind, Goals 2000 and School to Work were originally passed with sunset dates. They were just a little late in sunsetting them. Think of it this way. It takes two booster rockets to get the shuttle in orbit. Once the shuttle is in orbit, they can reject or sunset their boosters. Now all you need is to maintain orbit. No child left behind. Is maintaining orbit of the shuttle of this system. It is the accountability measures put in place to ensure every state complies. Now here's one of the ways that you know, uh, all three pieces of the Goals 2000 School to Work Workforce Investment Act are all part of a single plan. You can't assume they're different ideas. They are all part of a single unit plan. Um, now, No Child Left Behind, again, as I say, pretends to sunset this. But let me show you how it enforces the national curriculum. It says that the standards are voluntary. We all heard the term voluntary national standards for so long. Well, No Child Left Behind mandates that districts will be held accountable to the nation's report card, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Secondly, they tell us that the National Assessment Governing Board's policy mandates that the content of NAEP reflect voluntary national standards. Folks, when you mandate something that's voluntary, it's no longer voluntary, right? Voluntary now means mandatory. Change your dictionaries, that's what it now means. Let's move on. Now, I'm going to go through the three parts of Shirley McCune's, and I'm going to go through them in reverse. First, the economic connection to education. This is our Minnesota State Education document that explains the three circles of this system. Note, it is education reform tied to workforce preparation and economic development. Look at the center, the three words in the center, school to work. School to work is the nut that holds the whole radical thing together. Now that has now been replaced with a new term, workforce investment boards. Isn't that convenient in the official documents? But it says that what it means for education is education now is to be key to one's ultimate life and work goals. Well, how do you know that? How can you shape someone's ultimate life and work goals through education unless somebody has determined your ultimate life and work goals? 
You see, in a free society, education is supposed to be a broad-based liberal arts education to prepare for whatever the future holds. This system says, ah, we alone know what the future is, and we're going to retrofit you with what you need to meet those needs. That's the difference between the two systems of freedom and tyranny. Now, the document goes on to say that school to work is a whole new way of thinking, a revolutionary approach that will recreate these concepts. Now, when I say it's a revolution, I'm called a conspiracy wacko in Minnesota. Well, I'll tell you what, that's because I'm a property rights guy, okay? That's what makes me radical. You know, the, the real radical writers are the Rockefeller Republicans who are helping put this whole system into place, too. Now, unfortunately, that last sentence that you just heard is Chapman's only mention. And it's really just a hint that there is a broader picture to examine here than just a strict progressive agenda. And that's what we're looking at today. We are going to try to move this a little bit more towards the specific piece of legislation, bipartisan legislation, called No Child Left Behind. But... I think what's important to understand here is that just like heroin is a sort of social glue where people who might not have anything in common with each other ideologically gravitate together around the use of heroin, uh, so is the case with megalomania. We see some very odd relationships forming around uh, the control of children's minds all throughout. I mean, we were focusing on the earlier part of the 20th century, but this goes on all throughout the century. And one of the common threads running through all of it is these foundations that are funding it behind the scenes. And right there, I think we identify another very important type of glue involved in this situation, or maybe considering where it is coming from, in this case, it's more like flypaper. That is money coming from the Rockefellers, Carnegie, the Ford Foundation. That is a very, very important factor in all of this as well. And to elucidate that last point, uh, I imagine myself in a situation where I have all of these ambitions for the School Socks Project, right? And somebody like uh, Peter Thiel comes to me, and he says, I'll give you $4 million. And I say, think about what I could do with $4 million. I wonder how much $4 million in one hand and the need for an investigation of Peter Thiel, who he is, and what his motives are, in the other hand. Ooh, that might be one tippy scale. I have to admit. Because I don't know what it's like to hold $4 million and to think about all of the things. Like, maybe all of my intellectual energy starts going into what can I do with $4 million and away from... Now, why does Peter Thiel do this, and why does he show up here? And after all, he did the Seasteading Institute. He's probably a decent guy. Now, I can say with 100% certainty that I would never willingly compromise the show's integrity for money. But I don't know how much having that money, or even the prospect of having that money, leads to story time for a person, where they say, oh, yeah, this person is certainly good, and think of all the things we'll do, and there's no strings attached— uh, I don't know. And I know I'll probably never be in that situation, so maybe I'm not putting as much thought into it as I should. But I can imagine, at the very least, a conflict uh, for people who find themselves in situations like that. So John Dewey, you know, is this idealistic, progressive guy. And maybe, 
if you read his writing, we actually talked about this in an episode of the show called Primary Sources. Dewey's vision, Dewey's intentions were at some point distorted by something. His beliefs did evidence to me a fair amount of philosophical corruption, but how much further was he corrupted by people coming to him with millions of dollars and saying, I see you're an ambitious guy who wants to change the world. Let me help you. Because Dewey wrote, like we talked about in that show called Primary Sources, might have been about 20 episodes ago, Dewey wrote a lot of stuff that was far from horrifying. He wrote a lot of stuff that I agreed with. But he was also a very left-wing guy, and he you know, existed in thought in this paradigm of control, of shaping society. You know, just like uh, from when we talked about Peter Thiel. He seems to be, to probably a lesser extent than Dewey, from what I can tell, I could be wrong, in that paradigm as well. So the difference between me and John Dewey, which I think is also worth pointing out here, is that because I'm not in that paradigm, I'm not really co-optable. Like, nobody would get anything from bringing me in unless they could dramatically transform how I think, which is not something that's going to happen. At least not, you know, I'm not saying that my thinking isn't going to change and evolve over time, but it's not going back to the state. That would be the wrong direction. That wouldn't make any sense. It would take some kind of uh, uh, MK Ultra type thing to have that happen. But because John Dewey had these very left-wing views and did think that People in academia, like himself, were in a position where they could shape and determine the direction of society. He was very co-optable. And the money doesn't go to podcasts, you know, today, but it always goes to academia. So I think that's an important distinction to point out there as well. And today, as we try to bridge this gap, I think in light of what we've covered so far, it's getting easier to understand the feasibility of a partnership or at least a relationship between these progressive central planner types and those who are the heads or at the very top of large and well-established corporations, they all benefit from centralized control. They might have different motives, but the same course of action is necessary to achieve those goals. Now, there's a saying that everybody wants to rule the world. This is particularly true with the Rockefeller family. And we're not talking about that in any kind of abstract way. They want to control the world. And they're not the only family that has such aspirations. And for over a century, in various areas, they have worked on this project. And education has just been one component of it. Centralizing power into fewer and fewer hands on a global scale has been another that's not something that I want to stray off into on this show, but there have been, well, several ways of trying to go about this centralization of power, global power, into fewer and fewer hands. And after World War II, and this continued for decades, the cry was, never again, never again can we allow someone like Adolf Hitler to rise to power, so we need to you know, have a world police organization and all of these uh, other world networks that 
tie nations together, making them uh, interdependence. That's a big word. And through that, we see the emergence of things like the European Union, ultimately. But for the last quarter century or so, there's been uh, a new urgent cry, and that has been environmentalism. And I encourage you to go and look, uh, look for David Rockefeller. He is the Rockefeller of the current age. And listen to him talk about the problem of overpopulation. This is mainstream liberal stuff. You can see how these two seemingly very different interests have found some common ground. And that is through environmentalism, talking about the overpopulation of the earth and the need for something like Agenda 21. Back on track, I found another article on a website called Education and Democracy, so you know where they're coming from, that I want to share with you. It is called Origins and Purpose of No Child Left Behind, and the author is a woman named Kathy Emery. When Ted Kennedy and George Bush agree on something, one needs to worry about who the man behind the curtain is. And after doing research for my dissertation, it became clear to me that the men behind the curtains are members of the Business Roundtable. No Child Left Behind represents only the latest manifestation of a bipartisan bandwagon of standards-based advocates, a bandwagon built in the summer of 1989 by the top 300 CEOs in our country. At this meeting, the Business Roundtable CEOs agreed that each state legislature needed to adopt legislation that would impose, quote, outcome-based education and high expectations for all children and, quote, again, rewards and penalties for individual schools, greater school-based decision-making. I'm not sure how that fits into this. And align staff development with these action items. By 1995, the Business Roundtable had refined their agenda to nine essential components, the first four being state standards, state tests, sanctions, and the transformation of teacher education programs. By 2000, our leading CEOs had managed to create an interlocking network of business associations, corporate foundations, governors associations, we heard Chapman reference that as well, nonprofits, and educational institutions that had successfully persuaded 16 state legislatures to adopt the first three components of their high-stakes testing agenda. The network includes the Education Trust, the Annenberg Center, Harvard Graduate School, Public Agenda Archive Incorporated, Education Commission of the States, the Broad Foundation, Institute for Educational Leadership, federally funded regional laboratories, and most newspaper editorial boards. If I can just step out of the article here for a second. Comparing that to everything that we had talked about in this show prior, reading from uh, Gatto's book, The Daughters of the Barons of Runningmede, you know, one of the great benefits of schooling for the powerful is that it makes people predictable. But aren't we kind of finding here that one of the great benefits of education to the people is that it makes the powerful predictable? I mean, it's just the same crap over and over and over again, isn't it? Continuing on. By 2000, many states' legislatures, however, were balking at the sheer size and scope of what corporate America was demanding. The Business Roundtable took note of this resistance when publishing in the spring of 2001 a booklet entitled Assessing and Addressing the Testing Backlash, Practical Advice and Current Public Opinion Research for Business Coalitions and Standards Advocates. My guess is the timing of this renewed effort to turn up the heat involved getting federal, the federal government into the act by aligning the federal education policy with the business roundtable's state-by-state strategy. 
Gene Hickok, the U.S. Undersecretary of Education, specifically charged with implementing NCLB, said as much to a gathering of CEOs in the spring of 2003 at the Milken Institute's annual global conference. As you read the following quotation, you might want to count how many times Hickok uses the word leverage. He said, One of our hopes for NCLB is that 30 years from now, we will look back on this era as having era, <laughs> sorry, as having been one in which a reformation of American education took place. One of the virtues of no child left behind is leverage, leverage at the state and at the local level. We don't mind being the bad guys in terms of the ones pushing it, but I think our concern is that we are short-sighted in how much leverage we could use. I think it's leverage that could create a revolution in American education. We have been talking about these issues forever. It's time to make sure we move from discussion to action. I'm very concerned that we will underestimate the potential we have to redefine everything. And again, this man was the U.S. Undersecretary of Education. That's the end of the excerpt. It's all about leverage in order to redefine everything. No Child Left Behind is to provide that extra pressure on recalcitrant states to get with the Business Roundtable program. And if you look closely, No Child Left Behind is merely a more draconian version of California's 1999 Public School Accountability Act. So corporate business leaders in states who are already with the program can play good cop to Hickok's bad cop, while those states still balking are now under tremendous pressure to come up with state legislation that conforms to the Business Roundtable's educational agenda. But why redefine everything, as Hickok so eloquently puts it? One way to answer this question is to look at the historic relationship between American business and educational reform. When you do, you can see that we are currently in the midst of the second major transformation of the U.S. public school system. When Horace Mann convinced the Massachusetts state legislature in 1837 to establish the very first state board of education, the U.S. was still primarily an agricultural economy, but one undergoing the first pangs of an industrial revolution. By 1890, America was an urban industrial economy. The working class, most of them foreign-born, were in control of city governments. This was not acceptable to the new corporate business class, who proceeded to systematically eliminate working class representation from city government, including school boards. The newly formed business-dominated school boards proceeded to create the modern comprehensive schools, an important part of which was the introduction of standardized norm reference tests. Since the 1890s, these tests, along with the factory-like conditions of public high schools, have been central to fulfilling one of the major purposes of our public schools. In an industrial economy, working-class students needed to be tracked into vocational education and middle-class students into college prep courses. This is one reason why we find standardized tests to be more strongly correlated to socioeconomic status than to any other variable. Many of you might have noticed that in the last 20 years, we have been living through the transition from a manufacturing economy to a service economy. Along with this transformation of the economy has come the transformation of the public school system from one that has tracked students into vocational ed and college prep to one that is now tracking students into college prep and dropouts. I'm not sure that this was entirely foreseen by the Business Roundtable CEOs in 1989, but I'm sure they are satisfied with the current results. It's a little bit of speculation, Kathy. And even though educationanddemocracy.com is more of a left-wing publication, uh, this is a sentiment that is echoed far beyond, as we saw with uh, Michael Chapman, uh, echoed far beyond the liberal media. G. Edward Griffin, far from a left-winger, 
in his book, uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, wrote, The purpose of the foundation of the General Education Board was to use the power of money not to raise the level of education in America, as we widely believed at the time, but to influence the direction of education. The object was to use the classroom to teach attitudes that encourage people to be passive and submissive to their rulers. The goal was and is to create citizens who were educated enough for productive work under supervision, but not to question the authority or to seek to rise above their class. True education was restricted to the sons and daughters of the elite. For the rest, it would be better to produce skilled workers with no particular aspirations other than to enjoy life. Robert Kiyosaki, pretty mainstream guy, the author of the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, wrote another book in the last couple of years, a whole series of Rich Dad books, by the way, but one of the latest was called The Conspiracy of the Rich, The Eight New Rules of Money. In it, he wrote, in 1903, John D. Rockefeller created the General Education Board. It seemed this was done to ensure a steady supply of employees who were always financially in need of money, a job, and job security. There is evidence that Rockefeller was influenced by the Prussian system of education, a system designed to produce good employees and good soldiers, people who dutifully followed orders such as do this or be fired, or turn your money over to me for safekeeping. I'll invest it for you, people like Bernie Madoff. Regardless of whether this was Rockefeller's intent in creating the General Education Board, the result today is that even those with a good education and a secure job are feeling financially insecure. So even though what we covered in the story there in Education and Democracy by Kathy Emery is nothing new, we still do have some room to elaborate on the question of how do these plans of a very small, exclusive, often secretive, and sometimes nefarious group of people wind up being disseminated to tens of millions, well, at this point it's been hundreds of millions, if not billions, of school children in America. Well, we've covered, and we covered in the show where we used the clips from uh, Peg Luxick on how the funding works through the government. We've covered in today's show how the funding works through these foundations into academia. But you also still have to kind of sell it. Like, dangling money isn't enough always. you got to tell people stories. So after I read about this business roundtable in the uh, true origins of the No Child Left Behind story on educationanddemocracy.com, Uh, I started to do some more research, and I came across a book called, awesome title here, by the way, The Comparative Political Economy of Collective Skill Formation by Marius Busmauer and Christine Tampuch. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. From the Oxford University Press, I want to read you an excerpt from this book. I think it's interesting, and... I think it's instructive to see how the people who sell these ideas, this agenda, to mostly well-intentioned but obedient people in academia have this way of discussing the lives of individual human beings. And when we're talking about education, we're really talking about children. So they have this way of discussing the individual lives of human beings with the same kind of humanity and empathy and respect for individual volition uh, as they would have if they were writing a manual about sheep herding. This is from chapter one. It is widely acknowledged that the availability of human capital, those are people, contributes to economic performance and competitiveness as well as social imagination and equality. 
In recent years, the challenge of globalized knowledge-based service economy prompted national governments and international organizations to pay increasing attention to skills. Policymakers regularly emphasize the need to invest in education and skill formation. But if human capital is such a desirable good, why is it so hard to create? And why do countries differ so much in how they attempt to produce it? That was a paragraph about people. One of the most interesting conclusions of scholarly work in recent years is the insight that the development and availability of skills is not a matter of unconstrained rational choices, but is strongly conditioned by and reflected in the institutional context of political economies, both historically and in the contemporary period. This literature points out that human capital is not a homogeneous good, but comes in different varieties and flavors and that countries differ largely with regard to the availability of different kinds of human capital, which has important consequences for patterns of economic competitiveness and social integration. Hence, the domain of skill formation must not be regarded in isolation from other domains of the political economy. Skipping ahead a bit, I just want to share one more paragraph with you from this book. This is also from the same chapter. The first insight is that collective skill formation systems collective skill formation systems. Okay, that's a very nice and clean, sophisticated way of talking about the same type of top-down control that we've been talking about in the show so far. Are not self-sustaining institutional equilibria. In other words, they can't be left to capriciousness and freedom and market signals. No, we need some top-down intervention from uh, what, did, uh, what did Chomsky call them, the responsible men. Let me read that line one more time. The first insight is that collective skill formation systems are not self-sustaining institutional equilibria. On the contrary, they are vulnerable and in part even fragile institutional arrangements that need the continuous political support of relevant stakeholders. The historical chapters in this volume provide the reader with a sense of the amount of contingency involved in the continual redesign of institutional arrangements and, in this sense, constitute a warning against the attempts of an ex-post rationalization. Confronted with contemporary challenges such as deindustrialization, Europeanization, and structural changes in the economy, collective training systems need to be adapted in order to survive. But these processes of reform always entail the danger of transforming the defining character of the system. Period. Now, from my experience, oftentimes books that are written by academics and intellectuals who are usually shielded from many of the harsh realities of the real economic world, when they put forward ideas, plans, agendas that, well, we, I guess we could say go against what most people's conception of decency and respect for other people would be. They always seem to favor in their writing sophistication over clarity. I mentioned Zbigniew Brzezinski a lot. I recommend, you know, next time you're in, I think you could find this book in a bookstore, The Grand Chessboard, about, uh, you know, his foreign policy agenda. I had to look up like 80 words in that book. I think that's worth pointing out. But what's more important than style here is content. And... I don't know who the target audience of this Oxford University Press book ultimately is. I assume that uh, academia, the business community, human resources, managers of people, or, you know, aspiring managers of people, and uh, they have had a lot of that 
decency and respect for the volitions of others schooled out of them. Right? Efficiency is king in this kind of scholarship. So this makes perfect sense and is written very eloquently. I think it might confuse a couple of people here and there. It was a very complex book, but I think the message of it really comes through. And many of the author's uh, estimations are entirely accurate. There is a tremendous amount of fluidity in the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years in you know the national economy, national economies around the world, uh, the world economy. That's all true. It would make sense that you would want to, if you had no regard, no knowledge of the philosophy of liberty, the non-aggression principle, self-ownership, property rights, the most efficient, the most sensible thing to do would be to use systems to benefit the, what were they called in the book? Relevant stakeholders. Many readers might overlook entirely the fact that the future, the potential of young people in this country and around the world is being deliberately compromised by people who are benefiting from the way things are now or the way they want things to be in the future, or even the way they see things going in the future. And when you have all of this access to the guns of government, you don't need to be creative. You don't need to be innovative. You don't need to be adaptive. You say, hey, you guys have this system backed up by guns. Now we want it to do this. Here's some money. Reductive, sure, but that's the general idea. This is something that Everybody talks about in mainstream politics anyway, the influence of money. But oh, how it might have affected them in the past, how it might have distorted their view of the world, what it might be doing to their children today. Mmm, off limits. The EQA tested for adaptability to change. What parents were told was, well, you know, our world is constantly changing and we want people who are going to be able to go with that and, and survive that. We don't want rigid people who are, can't cope. Sounds very reasonable. The EQA tested and scored for rapid emotional adjustment to change without protest. That was the state desired response. The EQA just didn't test the attitudes of children, it scored the attitudes of children. Goes on to say the effectiveness must ultimately be measured by the degree to which ESD changes the attitudes and behaviors of people, both in their individual roles and in their collective responsibilities and duties as citizens. And so we see the truth of this matter in a picture uh, that was sent to us at Maple River Education Coalition. This central school model says the aim of education is the knowledge not of facts, but of values. And in fact, we were given this at a school-to-work conference put on by the state of Minnesota, defining performance-based instruction, which, by the way, is just a new term for outcome-based instruction, which said that learning has not taken place until behavior has changed. It goes on to tell you that values, attitudes, and interests can be learned and taught, and they can be objectively evaluated. How do you do that? unless somebody knows the outcome attitudes that are desired. Well, the way we measure that is through something called an assessment. I had them write about their feelings about the upcoming test. How are you feeling about the test? Do you feel prepared? Why yes? 
why not? So you get, you get a stack of letters after the right, and you read them. How did it make you feel? I felt awful. I felt that it seemed as though I was caught between a rock and a hard place because no matter how much I prepared them for this test, they were so anxious about it, I was very worried that their anxiety would override their um, being prepared for the test. Dear Mayor Bloomberg, I am so nervous because the test is in three weeks. When my teacher, Ms. Rubenstein, told my class how important this test was, I started to sweat. I feel like a marshmallow on a stick, getting put in a fire, never even getting out of the fire, waiting to be eaten. So I melt nice and slow. Nervous alert, nervous alert. Oh no, I think I'm gonna boom. Oh no, I exploded. Now I'm melting into a gigantic puddle. All that's left of me. I just can't handle it. I just can't. Oh my, I'm so embarrassed. I just am. I really hope I pass third grade. I love school and I feel that we should not have to be nervous this young. Please help us third graders with this situation. What do we assess? We assess our houses for its value. We assess our cars for its value. Folks, we are now assessing our children based on their value, perceived value to society, based on how well they now demonstrate that they think like a globalist. That's the meaning of assessment. That's what we're doing to our children. Now, No Child Left Behind made it a federal offense for me to show you the NAEP test, so I can't do that anymore. But what I will show you is the results from this National Center for Education Statistics document that assessed the percentage of children who now believe it's government's responsibility to take on economic concerns. Keeping prices under control, 84.2% of America's ninth graders now believe it's government's responsibility to set prices. Providing industries with the support they need to grow, supporting business, 66.2%. Guaranteeing a job for anyone who wants one, government's responsibility. And finally, reducing differences in income and wealth among people. 63.5% of ninth graders, tomorrow citizens, voters, and government officials now believe it is government's responsibility to redistribute wealth. The curriculum is working. Please help us third graders with this situation. I, Michael R. Bloomberg, do solemnly swear. I, Michael R. Bloomberg, do solemnly swear. That I will support the Constitution of the United States. That I will support the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the State of New York. We will test our educators. We will test our students. The need is real. The time is now. Without authority, there is no accountability. The public through the mayor, must control the school system. Within six months, legislation to rescue the city's ailing schools was implemented. Under the new system, the Board of Education was completely dismantled, thus making the mayor directly responsible for the school's achievement, and the schools held directly accountable to the mayor. Meanwhile, in Washington, something very similar was happening. One week after Mayor Bloomberg was sworn in, President Bush signed into law the No Child Left Behind Act, which among other things, made schools accountable to the federal government in exchange for federal dollars. 
And in a world which is largely governed by food pellets and electrified metal grids, you will probably not be surprised by the philosophical underpinnings of No Child Left Behind or educational philosophy on the federal level in general. I want to read you one more clip from a scholarly journal. This is from the Virginia Tech Digital Archives. The journal is called The Journal of Industrial Teacher Education. This is by Nancy Kimes from the Oklahoma State University. In this piece, she is comparing and contrasting the No Child Left Behind Act with what is called career and technical education. From what I can gather, it is similar to the vocational education that existed uh, when I was in high school as well as long before that. And uh, I know it's not as common today, but that is the comparison she's making. So one section of this piece is called A Philosophical Debate. It would appear that the fundamental difference between No Child Left Behind camps is a difference in philosophy. Now, she means for or against. Those are the camps. Those who advocate the act in its entirety espouse a behaviorist philosophy, a belief that a mandated standard will produce standard results in all students. Certainly, the accountability inherent in No Child Left Behind is behaviorist in origin. It is, for all intents and purposes, competency-based education. In competency-based education... The emphasis is on the outcome. It is product-centered rather than process-centered, and acceptable evaluations are criterion-referenced. While career technical education is, in many aspects, behaviorist, the system allows students the opportunity to demonstrate competency in a variety of ways, such as not the case with No Child Left Behind. Results for students can only be demonstrated by success on high-stakes examinations. Competency-based education places primary emphasis on student outcomes. The qualifications of teachers are secondary to this. There is a difference of opinion among behaviorists who advocate competency-based teacher education as to how a teacher can demonstrate competency. Most believe this should be determined by demonstrated skills and competencies. However, there is no consensus as to which competencies are essential. No Child Left Behind places greater emphasis on instructors than do most competency-based proponents. Additionally, No Child Left Behind measures teacher effectiveness through student outcomes. The intent of No Child Left Behind was closely tied to a desire to produce an adequate workforce of skilled laborers, the author claims. This is certainly a core value which drives career technical education program planners. Where the two groups diverge seems to be in regard to outcomes. No Child Left Behind measures outcomes in only one way and ties future funding to an institution's ability to meet prescribed standards. Prescribed standards. For the designers of No Child Left Behind, student success resides solely in academic realms. Career technical educators realize that students who are not highly successful in core academic areas may yet be successful in other career technical education areas. Progressive philosophy is evident in CTE's ability to, quote, foster creativity and stability as well as individual and social consciousness. I don't know why she's calling that progressive philosophy based on what we've talked about today. No Child Left Behind is not about creativity or individuality. Students must yearly demonstrate a certain level of growth, growth, air quotes with my fingers, or they are not deemed successful. And at this point, I don't think it is too shocking that the pedagogy backing up the scientific management agenda that has existed in this country and beyond for now over a century is the same old box 
that has just been relabeled and updated, at least in its rhetoric, for the 21st century. In closing today, I want to play you two more clips. And these are from two very different points of view. It's kind of a theme in the show today. The first one is from Chomsky. We already heard from him at the very beginning of the show. And Michael Chapman from EdWatch, who's describing how the No Child Left Behind legislation fits into the bigger picture of Agenda 21. These two clips will total about 10 minutes. That time will require your patience and uh, close attention. So bear with me. When we teach children about aspects of science that they cannot yet grasp, then we have wasted valuable educational resources, produced nothing of lasting value, and much worse, we take all the enjoyment out of science when we do so. And he discusses DNA, his own field. He says, unfortunately, most students today are taught about DNA at such an early age that they are forced to merely memorize the fact that, gives a quote from a textbook, DNA is the material from which genes are made. It's a chore that brings no enjoyment or understanding whatsoever. And much later, he says, when they do have the background to understand both the structure of the DNA molecule and its explanatory power, I fear that the joy of discovery has been eliminated by the early memorization of boring DNA facts. We've spoiled a beautiful story for them by teaching it at the wrong time. And he goes on to the college level. He says, for example, in an introductory biology class, students are often required to learn the names of the 10 enzymes that oxidize sugars. Uh, but a, an obsession with such details can obscure any real understanding of the central issue, leaves students with the impression that science is uh, impossibly dull, uh, many of them, uh, causes many of them to drop it. Uh, tragically, we have managed to simultaneously trivialize and complicate science education. As a result, far too many, for far too many, science seems a game of uh, recalling boring, incomprehensible facts, uh, so much so that it may, may make little difference whether the factoids about science that come from a, the periodic table or a movie script. You give some examples. Uh, again, I'm sure you've had your own experience about that. Uh, just to interpolate, I certainly have. I remember when I was a 16-year-old freshman at the University of Pennsylvania, I had to take a general chemistry course with about this many students in the audience. It was insufferably boring. And, first of, and furthermore, it was completely obvious what was going to happen. So if you read the textbook, you knew exactly what was going to happen. So I never went to class. Uh, but they you know, got an A. It was OK. I actually had a friend who took notes. That helped. But the, uh, but the worst part was that they had a lab. And I knew perfectly well that if I went to the lab and carried out the experiments, none of them would work. That's kind of reflects automatic. So I didn't go to the lab. Uh, there's a, there was a manual where you had to fill in the answers to the results of the experiments. And again, entirely obvious what they were going to be, so I filled it in, you know, got an A and so on. But then I had a, but then I had a very unpleasant experience. I had to register for the next semester, and when I tried to register, they insisted on my paying a fee for breakage in the laboratory. I'd never been to the laboratory, I didn't know where it was, you know, but obviously couldn't say that, you know, so... 
so I had to pay $17, which was a lot of money in those days uh, for the breakage in the lab that I never attended. And of course, I don't remember a thing from the course. I'm sure many of you can duplicate this experience. Uh, actually, now, this approach uh, generalizes. It even has a name. It's called No Child Left Behind. It's, uh, it's, uh, I see you've experienced it. Uh, actually, it's been going on for about 10 years. Uh, no reported progress, uh, which is no surprise. Uh, serious education is radically different. It's the, what Alberts was recommending. And it's the way science is actually taught at the advanced levels. So take my own university, MIT, it's a research university. Uh, there's a famous, world famous physicist, uh, late Victor Weisskopf, who like a lot of uh, senior faculty taught freshman courses. And he used to say that when he came to the first session of his freshman course, uh, students would ask, uh, what are we gonna cover this semester? And his routine answer was, it doesn't matter what we cover, it matters what you discover. And maybe you'll discover that what I'm teaching is wrong. That would be great. That's the kind of thing we want to do. So in that clip, Chomsky describes the behaviorist approach to education that is no child left behind. And behaviorism, as we've talked about in the previous shows, is characterized by top-down instruction, learning by rote, repetition, and standardized uniform outcomes for all students, regardless of aptitude, weaknesses, or background. And as we talked about in previous shows, behaviorism as an educational philosophy is often contrasted with constructivism. So, and this might seem strange, here's Michael Chapman's assessment of No Child Left Behind. The transformation of education, education for a sustainable future requires a change in approach in the teaching and learning process. This brings us to number two. And that is the idea that preparing American youth for the 21st century requires a radical departure from traditional classroom instruction. Above all, it requires a shift in long-held beliefs that the role of the teacher is to transmit knowledge to the students. Instead, teachers must view themselves as facilitators through which young people construct knowledge themselves. Now, that's a long way of saying indoctrination. But the problem is, this came in, out of ni 1989, by the way, by the Carnegie Council on Adolescent Development, and is the plan now for our education system. Uh, the research link that I use is out of our State Department of Education, who did a research on performance-based instruction called constructivism. It tells us, uh, basically, constructivism means postmodernism. Uh, there is no truth. Students construct their own understandings of reality and realize that objective reality is not knowable. So why bother? The truth is, the truth, which keep men free, is being suppressed in order to prop up the attitude training agenda. And it moves on. Uh, you can see this through the final subject to fall by the national standards is education. This is our new uh, math in Minnesota called Connected Mathematics, uh, based on the National Center of Tr Teachers of Mathematics. Standard 3 tells us that students learn that mathematics is man-made, that it is arbitrary, and good solutions are arrived at by consensus. No lie. There is no truth, not even in math. <laughs> Most of us assume 2 plus 2 is always going to equal 4. You're wrong. We might reach a new consensus. Consensus is the theme that is more important in math than math. 
Now keep in mind, this is based on a shift in worldview. Mathematic was not a self-existing truth discovered by man and the secrets of it unlocked. It was a social construction to meet society's need. This is the shift in thinking about all of our curriculum today. They're all based on the postmodern or constructivist approach. Uh, how well does it work? Well, they tell you. In the teacher's guide in the back, it tells us that because the curriculum doesn't emphasize arithmetic computations done by hand, some students may not do as well on tests assessing computational skills. We believe such a trade-off in the favor of CMP is very much to the student's advantage in the world of work. You see, we don't want children who can think about the numbers behind the buttons. We simply want children to be prepared to, to know which buttons to push. That's why the new cash registers at the fast food have pictures on them, not numbers. Our children are mathematically illiterate on purpose. How do I know on purpose? Why isn't this just a basic bad idea? Because the Sustainable Development Plan tells us so. Generally, more highly educated people who have higher incomes consume more resources than poorly educated people who tend to have lower incomes. In this case, more education increases the threat to sustainability. Whoa. Charlotte Iserby, I owe you an apology. I did not believe for the longest time it was a deliberate dumbing down. I thought the dumbing down was a natural consequence of a bad idea. Folks, it's deliberate. It's deliberate. So what is No Child Left Behind? Is it behaviorist or is it constructivist? After all, those seem to be two diametrically opposed ideologies for pedagogy. The truth is that No Child Left Behind, in all of its prior forms, like outcome-based education, actually represent the worst of both worlds. Chomsky is right. Chomsky, incidentally, who would be so pissed if he heard a podcast where he was being juxtaposed against somebody like Michael Chapman, who's speaking out so passionately and angrily about not just education in America and around the world, but perhaps even more importantly, what he sees as the larger agenda. In other words, what is this education? What attitudes and values is this education designed to bring about in people? which is, as he argues, support of this global government plan, ostensibly to save the world, the natural world, from the human predators that we all are and our carbon footprints. The environment is a, is a big issue to Noam Chomsky, and I think if he heard this, he would say that uh, I'm just a willing pawn, mindlessly parroting propaganda that originated in public relations departments of huge multinational corporations and in the meeting rooms of the John Birch Society. I don't know, probably something like that. But he's right. His assessment of No Child Left Behind is right. It is about rote instruction, standardization. But Chapman is right. No Child Left Behind, and all its previous forms, did carry this message that self-evident truth, objective knowledge, is unknowable. So as he said, why bother? It's about consensus. And teachers are merely facilitators in helping students construct their own knowledge. But one last question that again touches on the theme of today's show. Are today's students, air quotes freely, air quotes constructing this air quotes knowledge, 
inside some kind of enclosure with very clearly drawn boundary lines, which only lets out very safe and predictable outcomes. Let's hear from Peg Luxick one more time. You hear a lot of talk about values clarification, and, and there's a lot of controversy about it, but people don't always understand what's wrong with it. You know, that those promoting it say, well, we're just trying to help of our children to understand their values. I want you to think of your mind as a computer. You've all heard the lifeboat story, right? You know, there's ten people in the lifeboat, the lifeboat only holds nine. Who are we going to throw out of the lifeboat? And if I told you that story, all of your mind would start thinking, who am I going to throw out of the lifeboat? The first time I heard the lifeboat story, I was a grad student. My degree's in special ed, so I'm a ringer. And I said to the prof, well, we're not throwing anybody out of the lifeboat. We'll throw a rope out of the back of the lifeboat and somebody swims for a one-hour shift. There's only ever nine people in the boat and everybody only swims three hours a day for an hour at a time. He said, there's sharks in the water. I said, there's a shark bag in the boat. And the conversation ended. But I was a ringer because I knew that he had controlled the universe. He said, who are you going to throw out of your lifeboat? So all of your minds, because that's how all of our minds work, there's the boss and there's where we go. Just like a salesman says, do you want it on your Visa or your MasterCard? He gave you a choice, didn't he? Is no one of the choices? Never. You always get a choice, but I control the universe of choices. That's how various clarification works. If I control the universe of choices, I can mold someone's behavior. And they always think that they thought it up by themselves because they didn't realize that I controlled the box. That's why values clarification is wrong because it makes the child think that they made up their own mind when they really didn't because I gave them some very concrete guidelines inside of which they had to make up their mind. And it's a very valid way of changing a behavior. So here's the weird part. Both Michael Chapman and Noam Chomsky who I believe are, you know, highly intelligent men, even though they have very divergent points of view on this issue. They both seem entirely willing to overlook the fact, unless they just never noticed it, which really surprises me. This is the kind of thing that Chomsky especially is really good at. They both seem to overlook the fact that their debate, even though they're not having it directly with each other, is very much happening in a predefined box. Chomsky is against certain aspects of No Child Left Behind. The standardization, rote instruction, top-down approach. He doesn't like that. He says that's not what real learning is. I agree. Chapman seems to be against other aspects of No Child Left Behind. The shift away from actual knowledge acquisition in favor of agenda-driven indoctrination. I certainly agree with that. That is not real education. But neither one of them asks the question, why does anybody believe that the state has any claim whatsoever to the time and to the minds of children? They never question the validity of public school itself. And this is nothing new. So inside of this box, over time, if nothing changes, you will be able to watch one debate after another over how schooling should work. You will see one debate after another, acrimonious and meaningless, over why schooling is failing our children. 
and right outside of that box is education. Thanks for listening and take care. And before we part ways today, if what you just heard is building your interest in helping us gain and maintain presence and continue to build the legacy of the School Sucks Project, you can become a supporting member of our community. There are links in the show notes, but the easiest and most options-filled way is to become a patron. It is patreon.com slash school sucks. We have several tiers of membership, but what we do here at School Sucks, value for value exchange. I first heard that term on another podcast I listened to called No Agenda, where people get value from the show, and then they return value to the people who do the hard work of creating the show. What we've developed at School Sucks, and I'm very proud of this, is the value for value and guess what more value exchange has that extra step in it. And what that is, is this. Most of our great work at this point is archived, and we also create content exclusively for our supporters. So when you send me the most important signal that I can receive that you find this show valuable, we exchange value, and then I give you access to a whole bunch of additional content, including a long list of educational archives that I believe is worth your time and attention. Also, for this specific Essential School Sucks endeavor, we have partnered with Praxis after I think I probably said Praxis on the show and praised their work, I don't know, 500 times since first hearing about it seven years ago. But in short, Praxis is an alternative to the tracks we are put on headed towards college at a very, very young age, college for too many uh, thoughtful, entrepreneurial, and ambitious young people is becoming an enormous opportunity cost. And Praxis was the first really viable alternative I ever encountered. So linked in the show notes for this episode and right at the top of the homepage for schoolsucksproject.com, you can learn how or how your teen can skip college. And now a man who will certainly emerge from the Essential School Sucks collection as one of its all-stars, Isaac Morehouse, Isaac is the founder of Praxis, has a free book after helping hundreds of young adults succeed in the professional and entrepreneurial world without college. They're sharing some of their philosophy and strategies for doing that. So you can get the book for free. It's linked in the show notes and right at the homepage, schoolsucksproject.com. All right. See you soon.